You, me, and HIFMB. Stories of science and the sea. Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the HIFMB podcast, where we meet with Dorothee Hodap, a postdoc uh, who works on biodiversity change. And she shares with us her study that recently got published in Global Change Biology, Climate Change Disrupts Core Habitats of Marine Species, a major, major piece that describes for the entire globe how climate change will affect marine biodiversity. So definitely give this one a listen because she not only talks about this very important study, but also about her career in, in science. And on top of that, she also talks about parenting in academia. So without further ado, I give you this great chat with Dorothee Hodap. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the HFMB podcast. And today we have Dorothee Hodap. And yeah, welcome. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> What do you consider yourself? That's always the main big question. Yeah, that's a big question and a difficult question. Yeah. And um, I always try and explain it by what I studied along the way. Mm -hmm. I, I studied uh, geoecology first, yeah. which is kind of like environmental science, so a big mixture of everything. And after that, I did a master's in statistics. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit like an ecologist who's interested in, in yeah, quantification on data analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right now, what groups are you affiliated with at HFMB? I'm not actually sure if I still have a group, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, like, as of this year, I'm part of the science management team mm -hmm. because I'm now affiliated with the transfer office. Mm -hmm. But before, I was um, affiliated with Helmut's working group, like mm -hmm. the plankton ecology, where I also did my PhD in. And I was also affiliated with Tom's group, the functional ecology from RV. So because the first cohort of postdocs that started in 2018, which is when I started at the HFMB, mm -hmm. we were all supposed, all those um, positions were designed to be a bit of a bridge, like to um, uh, facilitate collaboration between the university and the Alfred Wegener Institute. Oh, right, and okay. that's why both, like all of us were affiliated with one group each with university and um, yep. RV. Yep. So the, the institute was founded in 2017? I think so, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and you were amongst the first postdocs? Yeah, and exactly. Do you know if there were PhD students at the time? Yeah, Tabia ah, is yes. still w with us. Yeah. She was there, and, and also Alisa and Zara, but they, they all started a little bit later. Yeah. I think Tabia started in mid-2018, so, so all okay. of us, like, there were, were a couple of postdocs who started in 2017 already. Mm -hmm. But most of us started start of or mid of um, 2018. Yeah, yeah, sweet. So you're one of the of the foundation members. Yes, <laughs> one of the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and you're here today to talk about your recent paper from Global Change Biology. Yep. Yes. Entitled "Climate Change Disrupts Core Habitats of Marine Species." That's right. Yeah. So that came out recently, right? When? Maybe like three weeks ago. Yeah. Four weeks ago. Yeah can't remember to be honest but that's a major hit like i i remember helmut flipping out about it on slack and, <laughs> <laughs> and being really like this is major yeah i read it was like nah, that's a bit exaggerating but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> i'll take the the, the ad the advertisement <laughs> yeah yeah for sure okay so um in a nutshell what did you find or what did you do we looked at current and future distributions or or suitable habitat of marine species so we looked at over 33,500 species mm -hmm. and we used a so-called 
environmental envelope model or right. there's different names but this is one one that you can name it and looked at how the species distribution patterns will change depending on three different co2 emission scenarios until the end of the 21st century mm -hmm. okay and so who's on the team or how did team get formed what sparked the idea to make that the first one who came up with the idea to write a paper with Aquamaps data, which is the the model, the name of the model was Rainer Fröse. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like the, the father of of um, FishBase, which is a huge um, yeah. trade database on mm -hmm. fish. And one tool of FishBase, well, that's related to the FishBase database, is this habitat distribution um, model Aquamaps, which is called Aquamaps. Mm -hmm. And like stuff got added on, but this is only on f on fish. But later on, there was a been another database that's called uh, Sea Life Base, where mm -hmm. there's trade information on on all the other marine species apart from fish. And Aquamaps uses the trade information from fish base and sea life base, and also information on environmental conditions to then come up with current or future with whatever kind of information mm -hmm. um, you feed it on habitat suitability maps for all the different species that that yeah, it, it gets data from. Yeah. For. Um, Rainer Fröse, where, where is he based? He's based at the Geomar in Kiel. Ah, right. Okay. I, I remember that from my from my early studies in my masters. I worked a lot on fish, and we used fish base a ton. It, he did that with Dan Pauly, right? From, yeah, 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 right. yeah. I think they both kind of started it all up, and, yeah. and then it's been around for a while. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Are they looking for someone to take it over now? Yeah, kind of. It's. <sighs> It's difficult because like Aquamaps, because it's so old, it's mm -hmm. written, I think, with like SQL, like <laughs> uh, queries and stuff. So it's quite, and, and, and they hired something, I think, last year to rewrite it. But I mean, it's a huge amount of work. Yeah. And also you always need funding for these kinds of things because, of course, there's a lot of studies that use FishBase and, and Aquamaps data. But in the end, like, then no one ever really wants to pay for keeping those sites, like databases up and going. And yeah, that's right. I think they're kind of like in a transition at the moment, but I'm but I'm not actually I'm not actually sure what exactly is going to happen. Mm. Okay, let's hope it stays alive because it was yeah. a major resource for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. So so back to your paper though. So you're the co-author with Irene, who was on uh, I think podcast episode one of the early ones know. six. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. So you're co-authoring with her on yeah, this. Yeah, we we share first first authorship. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> how, how does it actually work if it gets cited? Is it still Hodap et al. then, or is it Hodap and Roca et al.? I'm not actually sure. We have not been cited yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay. Uh, it might be Hodap et al. I think because they usually I've never seen a citation of like two and then et al. Yeah. No, me neither. But but I mean it, it's written on the paper. And I think like for the for the important indices like in yeah. terms of publication and stuff, then they um, count it accordingly. Like mm. okay, we share it. All right. One of the first sentences is, is major, so it kind of states that uh, driven by climate change, marine biodiversity is undergoing a phase of rapid change, and it's usually faster than that observed in terrestrial ecosystems. Mm. And I quickly wanted to ask why that is. <laughs> yeah, that is, um, there are a number of studies on that, mostly by Marlene Pinsky and, and, and colleagues. Mm -hmm. And... They looked at differences between ter terrestrial and marine systems and they came up with a number of reasons for why they could be the case. And I don't think I can, I can remember all of them, but some of them were 
that there's less refuge space mm-hmm. for like in terrestrial systems an animal can always go and hide underneath a tree or something if, if it gets yeah. too hot or like underneath a stone or something which a lot of people do yeah. a lot of people a lot, love of, people. It. <laughs> a lot of people as well probably <laughs> a big stone but yeah. um uh, but and and that that's not the case in, in a lot of marine systems yeah. and then there's another reason that dispersal can happen a lot faster and and because there's hardly any dispersal barriers in marine systems so mm-hmm. so uh species are actually able to just move somewhere else when in case it gets too hot or like there's not enough oxygen or something mm-hmm. and then there's also a reason why they um, marine animals kind of need to do that is also because they are used to a lot smaller temperature range because temperature doesn't change that quickly in marine systems mm-hmm. as it does in in terrestrial systems so they are accustomed to a lot smaller or they can tolerate a lot smaller um, temperature changes than yeah. a lot of terrestrial yeah. which then makes it for them like a need to go and move somewhere else if it gets too hot yeah Potentially, as you've seen with maybe if you ever had aquarium fish, when oh. you have to like put them with the bag uh, that they yeah, were yeah. bought in, in the water that you're going to place them in so that the, they have time to adapt. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of, true. yeah, a I've little never bit. Had like aquarium, but I can imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in the paper, you base predictions on their future ranges, on mm. the species future ranges, uh, based on a multi parameter habitat suitability model. And if you could quickly explain that. <laughs> so maybe I do it sort of word by word. Multi-parameter just means that we, because so far there have been other studies on range shifts of marine species and also terrestrial species. And, and a lot of them have based their predictions mainly on temperature because mm-hmm. it is the main factor that's driving um, the shifts in, in, in distribution patterns. Yeah. But there's also other factors that, play a role so we use temperature oxygen salinity distance from land <laughs> so there's a number of i, c- I can't recall them all yeah, no, that's the moment. <laughs> uh, so that's why it's multi-parameter mm-hmm. so we use more than just one uh, environment parameter and what, what was the rest of the habitat suitability uh, ha- yes okay. habitat suitability more so habitat suitability is that we like aqua maps with the information that we get because a lot of species there's hardly any information like a lot of marine species you don't you hardly know anything about what they what kind of temperature ranges or for other environmental parameters they actually have yeah so so you can only predict um based on the information on environmental parameters that you have an area that depending on environmental condition would be suited mm-hmm. for this kind of species i mean there's lots of other conditions and reasons like interactions with other species competition and and anthropogenic pressures or something that that might um, make a certain habitat unsuitable for a certain species but mm-hmm. based on the environmental parameters and, and and what you know about the species where it is occurring where you've got occurrence records you suspect that the species would be able to live there okay so this is why it is habitat suitability so it just means this place depending like with the current situation of environmental parameters this could be suitable for mm-hmm. species a b or c to live there and that is what the aqua maps are or s- sort of or, or did you take what is contained in the aqua maps information and then make those models out of that no this is like aqua maps produces those habitat suitability right. maps those global maps for every single species okay. that that they have information on okay and then based on that you kind of predicted their global projected ranges and under those three co2 emission scenarios rcp 2.6 rcp 4.6 and rcp 8.5 4.5 it is what did i say 4.6 oh sorry (laughs) um yeah 4.5 uh very good (laughs) i'm listening (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and then you projected uh what it's gonna look what their 
ranges basically are going to look like in 2100. Uh, yes, like this is also what we get from our maps. Mm -hmm. We okay, just right. then, with all that information on the different range patterns, we then just calculated how um, certain biodiversity parameters like richness yeah. um, will change between now and, and, and the future, mm -hmm. depending on, on like CO2 emissions. And we looked at species turnover, so how is the species community, the identity of species that live at a certain spot, how much is that going to change? Uh, is there going to be completely different, a completely different set of, mm -hmm. of um, species there in, in, at the end of the 21st century, or will it still be the same? Or yeah. So those kinds of questions we looked at. And, and how... And how um, uh, will those distribution patterns and ranges change because there's the tendency that because it's getting too warm mm -hmm. around the equator that species are moving um, further towards the poles, so either north on the northern hemisphere or south on the southern. Yeah, okay. And and one of your main results of um, what comes out of the high emission scenario, so RCP 8.5, is a net loss of 50% of the core habitat of half of all marine species. Mm-hmm. That's wild. It's a lot. I mean, yeah. you always have to... I have to explain a little bit how we get to this. So yeah. what we call core habitat area mm -hmm. is all the cells, like the, the whole globe oceans are split up into different grid cells. Mm -hmm. And for every grid cell, we calculate the probability of occurrence for every single species. How likely is it that a species will occur there under the given environmental conditions? And then we call core habitat area every cell... That is that has a probability that's higher than 0.5. Mm -hmm. okay. So that means there will likely be other cells that only got a probability of 0.4, where the species could also maybe occur, maybe not. Like it's right. because it's very difficult to actually have a cutoff. So where, yeah. where do you say okay, species because you can't work with like probabilities between like 0.01 and and uh, 0.09. So mm. you have to like uh, find a find a cutoff somewhere. Yeah. And this is the the one that people usually um, use when they use Aquamaps data. Okay. But that, right. because it's just important because like for some, we, we also calculated richness and richness at the moment is as high as in the tropics, like around the equator and then the Caribbean Sea and so on. And and uh, for some of those areas in at the end of the um, 21st century, we actually see like huge differences. Like at the moment you've got like 8,000 species there and then it drops to like a few hundred or something, like, like very, very low. Yeah. Then if you then take into account that that doesn't mean that uh, there's not going to be any species there anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably likely going to be a lot less depending on how much they can actually adapt, which is something that we also don't know. Yeah. But then you just have to remember, okay, it's core habitat area that, we, that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So species will likely be there, but it's not, they might not like it as much <laughs> as they do now. Okay, all right. And can you, off the top of your head, say what species groups took the, the biggest hit? We didn't see huge differences between the different. We looked at um, and like several different species, like obviously like mammals, and then uh, yeah. uh, different types of fish and like cartilaginous fish and the J jawless fish. It said yeah. At some point, thank yeah. you. And then like like things like sea anemones or like different or phytoplankton or um, different groups. And there w was some variation. Mm -hmm. But um, like, but not like one distinct no, outlier. Okay. No. All right. Another very striking result is that uh, you you found gaps around the equator that will appear for, and now it's eight uh, percent for the uh, two point six scenario, twenty four percent for the four point five scenario, and eighty eight percent for the 
8.5 scenario. So, so, so what does that exactly mean? The that is, and that only refers to species that currently have a distribution that covers the equator. Like, so, so they occur mm -hmm. somewhere a little bit north and somewhere a little bit south of mm -hmm. the equator. So, but their their area, their um, habitat range covers somewhere the equator. Mm -hmm. And then we we're just interested. Um, Because somewhere around the equator is also where, where temperature will be highest or where temperature is in, increasing a lot. And, and where, because those are the highest temperatures anyway, where it is likely that the waters will, will simply become too hot at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's why we then, cal for, lo for all the species that at the moment live somewhere around the equator, we calculated the current gaps, which are then zero. We just like yeah. uh, looked at like the furthest north and the furthest south extent of their of their habitat range. And then we did that for also for their uh, distribution patterns and uh, at the end of the 21st century. Okay. And what we see is that for a lot of species and for the high emission scenario, the 8.5, it is 88% of those species that at the moment have those area ranges yeah, that, that go across the equator. Mm -hmm. yeah. For a lot of these species, Because the water right at the equator becomes unsuitable, mm -hmm. those distributions are actually split. Yeah. And and some actually some of these distribution patterns they they are split that far that like there's gaps of like a thousand kilometers in between because they move actually so far to the north and the south. Yeah. And that then means that there's not going to be an, an exchange of species and, and genes and stuff um, between those populations, which then can result either in, in the development of new species over very long terms, but can also result in that the, the effective population size of those, of those populations becomes smaller and, and therefore they get into higher risks of, of extinction, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was just one aspect that we looked at. Of course, you could do that at different parts of the world, yep. but um, that was just one of those, like a typical area where that could happen. Yeah, the classical pole world shift that yep. is always yeah talked exactly. about exactly okay, and then for many more species that um, so those distributional continuous distributional ranges will be disrupted, and thus reducing effective population size is one yeah. major exactly that's that's what can happen yeah and um, I mean yeah there's a lot of unknowns in, in all these yeah. calculations and predictions right but and, and, and also that I mean like also we don't really know how like what I said before like how fast will species be able to adapt to higher temperatures mm -hmm. but one thing you particularly highlight is that so obviously you have those high invasion rates into the higher latitudes and the polar regions and that will obviously lead to substantial uh, ecosystem uh, changes and food web structure changes mm. But one particular thing that you highlight is the introduction of new predators. And uh, yep, why, wh why did you focus on that as well? That is like a lot of things in data analysis and ecology. It's a little bit based on what kind of data we have. So we did have data on tropic level of fish mm -hmm. and you hardly have that for any other marine animal. And yeah. that's why we looked into the different trophic levels of fish species and, and, and how fast they, they're going to move. Mm -hmm. And there we saw that For the polar regions, actually, the the higher tropic levels are seem to be moving faster. Yeah. Based on the Aquamaps predictions, and and that of course means that in some areas where you don't normally expect a shark to occur or something, <laughs> yeah. suddenly there's going to be the, this new top predator, and and yeah, of course that's going to yeah. change something in the in the food web yeah, probably. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the things also I mean some um, other studies have also shown that a lot of the times that species that are occurring in the same kind of environment at the moment, they a lot of them will also shift together, mm -hmm. which 
might just mean that, that sometimes like a whole kind of community will, will be shifted and there might be not such huge changes as well but but then there's always animals that can't move as fast because their dispersal abilities are limited or they need to stick around the coast or something like yeah. and, and others won't so, so there's definitely going to be differences in in dispersal ability and there's definitely going to be so that turnover. We looked at that. We tried to look at that by calculating species co-occurrence, mm-hmm. current and the current condition, and also under future conditions. But we didn't manage to do it because it was just way too many species, and and yeah, we didn't yeah. like with the packages that that are um, available and are at the moment. It was just impossible because it's too many different combinations of species. Mm-hmm. But what we saw was that the number of new co-occurrences was actually very little. Yeah. Okay. Which I guess is partly like an, an, an effect of that species also move together because at the moment they like the same kind of environmental conditions. Yeah. So if those kind of environmental conditions change, the likelihood that they are going to move or try to move is, will also be similarly likely how if they can. If, if, if they can. <laughs> how big is depth? That, that just sprung to my mind. How much is depth involved in all of this? In this model or in... If, like w- Depth was one of our parameters, definitely. Okay, right. And um, one of the ones that I couldn't remember before. Yeah. And <laughs> we had a look at what environmental parameter drives the the amount of turnover so we did a random forest analysis to mm-hmm. see like w- which one is the the driving environmental parameter yeah. and and surprise surprise it's a uh, temperature but it w- there was a difference between the different co2 emission scenarios so mm-hmm. um for the lower uh, co2 emission scenario it was actually also primary production okay. because there's a lot of areas sort of in the in the big ocean areas where there's very little primary production and and in those areas, there's, there will be, in the future, will be even less primary production. Mm-hmm. So there's also, again, the question, like, will species then still be there? Or, like, like ha- you need to extrapolate the environmental envelope for the, yeah. for the species then. So that was, a, that was one of the major drivers for the lower CO2 emission scenarios. And for the higher ones, is then definitely sea ice cover, which is another one of those parameters. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> because, I mean, a lot of the ice and, and, the, and the poles will, will disappear and, and then mm-hmm. the species that are used to having ice around, they will, don't know, move somewhere else or adapt. Yeah. <laughs> whatever choice they have. And and that's why sea ice coverage and uh, temperature will then be the yeah. the most important drivers of, of changes in, in community and mm-hmm. marine communities. Interesting. One one thing that struck me the most, I don't know why necessarily, but it's always in when I look at your figures, uh, figure two strikes me the most because if you look at the highest emission scenario, you can clearly see what kind of is expected to me as like maybe because I'm a coral ecologist by training, but that the the equator is really highlighted by high turnover, by super high turnover, but also the poles. Yeah, that's the that's the difference in um, turnover can be driven by either species loss or species gain, mm-hmm. or yeah. it can be driven by a replacement of species identities okay. so that you might have the same amount of species but completely different ones in the future. Yeah. Uh, but the Jacquard index that we have it on that map, mm-hmm. that is overall turnover. So it doesn't distinguish between those yeah. different... Between gains like or... Exactly, yeah, between yeah, okay. different reasons for why the community is different. And what you see in the around the equator is definitely species loss driving the whole the high turnover. Yeah. And, and in in the polar areas, it's a species gain, gain yeah, and replacement okay. as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that. And so now, now moving into the discussion part of it, what are your main implications of the paper? Why would Helmut say it's the biggest paper coming out of this institute to date? <laughs> I definitely need to second this, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it is important 
and this is how I, I'm not prepared for this interview very well because it's like I got a uh, question from someone to be interviewed for this and, and asked Helmut, so what do you do? I mean, you've got a lot like, more experience in giving interviews. And he said, like, you should think about like the two or three main messages that you <laughs> you, that you want your paper to, <laughs> to, like, uh, to, to get out about your paper. And yeah. I obviously didn't do that, but hang on. No, it's I'll perfect practice now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think one important thing is that it's not like that we, we're going to lose all marine species. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a big change in patterns, yep. and uh, but it's not like we're going to lose half of the marine species, yep. which is, I think, to get away a bit from the doom and gloom that a lot of those papers sort of give the impression of. I mean, yeah, exactly. at the same time, if all the species dis distribution patterns move, this will still have huge consequences mm -hmm. for for us as humans because we depend on yeah being able to fish a certain fish in a certain area at the moment, like because of quota and whatever in, in the EU, but like also yeah. because of yeah if, if a tropical country like uh, a lot of them get a lot of their uh, protein from fish, then mm -hmm. if the fish become a lot less around that area, especially, then it'll have dramatic impacts on on those communities. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that'll be something that we need to adjust. Yeah. So it does have a major impact. and. Um, but I mean, your, your paper helps us prepare for that. Hopefully. just <laughs> I think just to raise awareness. Yeah. Well, just that, that these major changes are ahead and that they actually happen across all the different yeah. um, organism types. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also what I'd like to stress is they are a big difference. I mean... <laughs> As you do, normally you you um, report on the most outstanding results, and and these are for the high um, submission submission. Did I say submission? <laughs> CO two emissions scenario. <laughs> <laughs> and which is at the moment the one that we are following. Mm -hmm. But I mean, hopefully, maybe uh, some of the climate mitigation actions will actually be successful in the future, and so that we might not actually follow this high exactly. emission scenario that was never meant to as a because it's it's also something that i read up when i read up about them um, rcp scenarios and stuff <laughs> which i thought was very interesting so i'm going to share this oh yes which was never meant as a because it's often referred to as the uh was it what they call the the thingy as usual um and um, the business as usual. business as yeah. usual thank you um scenario but it was never intended as one it was meant as a high like worst case kind of like high emission scenario mm -hmm. but yeah as it happens, we are still following that one. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, as I was told, with a little dint around Corona, but like, yeah, we're <laughs> kind of back on track. Yeah. But there are big differences. So mm -hmm. these huge changes are not going to happen if we manage to follow one of the lower CO2 emissions scenarios. Exactly. So which I think is also like hopeful. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And amongst all the doom and gloom that yeah. could be read out of that paper, there's a lot of hope also. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thanks for that. Now that we've talked about your major piece, then <laughs> we can talk about you as the author. First of all, where are you from? I'm from Freiburg, yeah, the Black what, Forest. Yeah, what nobody would have expected from your accent. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, Freiburg. What drew you to the coast and marine stuff? I mean, that's not really a marine space. No, it's not. And I, and, and I mean, like, geoecology is not a marine, like, marine-focused subject either and and, mm -hmm. and um when i moved to, to new zealand to do my masters i also i studied statistics so so they, i mean it was closer to the scene then definitely yeah but um but it was mainly because i was 
during my degree in, in, in Potsdam, like during the geoecology degree, I was interested in biodiversity. That mm -hmm. sort of caught my attention for some reason. We had one course on that, one seminar, and I thought it was super interesting. And because I've always liked diversity in a way <laughs> which is like because i'm always like when you in, when you interview people and you're like oh they've always got this real good story about like that they were already interested in in whatever when they were a little kid and stuff and i always thought like oh, i'm just don't know i just find a lot of stuff interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but then when i think about it i already had diversity on my wall when i was a, a, a child i used Did to have these like it was actually rainforest wasn't really right. diversity but like <laughs> i really like those rainforest posts and it's just like don't know plants and animals and, and 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 i always liked nice landscapes which i think was then mm -hmm. definitely enforced when i was in new zealand just realizing that how good it is to be outside and just yeah. in, in, the, in the wild and um well, and freiburg too right it's a I was great never, i was never a big fan of the black forest to be honest you weren't it's too many pine trees i mean it's a mixed okay. forest but still it was just I yeah i've know. never been i it, it's on my list for sure but i thought yeah, it's like it's <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. Like, I was <laughs> never a huge fan of the Black Forest. I mean, it's it, Freiburg is cool because you can go, get everywhere really quickly, like Lake yeah. Constance or Switzerland or France. So, so you do have quite a bit of diversity in terms of landscape, which is a bit what you don't have up here. But anyway, um, <laughs> so it's nice, but it's – but, yeah, I'm not like – okay, this is bad promotion for the Black Forest. Of course, it's real cool down there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll still go. But I, yeah, no, but I, I know somebody. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, yeah. But I think I got sidetracked a little. Yeah, no, What did fine. I say? Oh, yeah, how did I end up here? Yeah. Because when I um, was, in terms of finishing my master's in New Zealand, mm -hmm. I had a look around and I wasn't like totally decided on doing a PhD, but I looked at what kind of uh, job options were there and all the jobs that I found interesting, they required a PhD. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do a PhD. Yeah. And then I looked for PhD um, positions and the one that was offered here, actually a former professor of mine uh, from Potsdam sent me the ad for it and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. that sounds cool. And it was about biodiversity as an indicator for ecosystem functioning. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I applied and they took me. Yeah. And <laughs> they didn't care that I had a real bad master's degree. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, that didn't work out. Oh, okay, right. I, I wouldn't have expected this because like your CV is like there's no gaps in it. It's I know because it was, they, they hired me before I had the mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Good to hear. Mm -hmm. that yeah, there so, is hope. so just apply early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Apply really early. Cool. So from Freiburg to Potsdam. From Potsdam to Otago in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, Dunedin is the city and the university is called University ah. of Otago because, because Otago is the region. Right, okay. Yeah. And then to the ICBM here, the Institute for Chemistry, Chemistry and, and Biology, Biology of the Sea. No, of the marine environment. Oh, uh, right, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I think here. it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. here in, in Oldenburg. And then, so you and Helmut go well back, really well back. A way back, that's what you said. Way, way back. Way back. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing in between Hamilton and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like 2010, I started here. And yeah. Yeah, and then he took over my supervision uh, for the PhD. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I just realized that it's really, really good to work with Hamilton because he gives yeah. you a lot of freedom, but also support and whatever you really want to do. And yeah. I guess a lot of people have made that experience. So. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy it. I can advertise us here even more. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's that's how I ended up trying to stick around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well done until now. Yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, exactly. 
So, and in 2014, you started your first postdoc um, yeah. in, in the same institute. Yeah. Project, yeah, at the, in the same institute. There was, um, it was lucky because um, when I was, again, like, just finishing my PhD, there was this project got funded, which was called BEFMATE Biodiversity Ecosystem Functioning Across Marine and Terrestrial Systems. Okay. And it was a project mm -hmm. that built those artificial islands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've yeah, talked about them in Lucy's episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, she's now in the Dynacom in the in the yeah. in the ancestor or whatever project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was fun. We built those islands. I was there, like, yeah, you were there? like shoveling sand and stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and, I had getting, no idea. and getting those sods from the yeah. from the islands to put them in to plant them on sand in those islands. Yeah, yeah I looked it at was them. fun. Yeah, yeah, I looked at them last summer. Like one of them. Tipped I, or, or broke I've or got no idea now that I'm now that I'm in a different project. I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. But like we had like also in the first winter, we had a lot of, because there were big storms. Mm. A lot of the sand just got washed out, so we had to go back then and right. like refill them and stuff. So yeah, it was a bit trial and error. It was fun to be part of it, definitely. But but, but I was actually employed as a postdoc for like data synthesis and, yep. and analysis again. But okay. like I was allowed to go too because they needed every hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that. Uh, position took you until December 2017. So were you involved in the founding of HFMB at all? I knew this was coming and I was hoping that it was, yeah. <laughs> was going to come. But at the time, I was on parental leave. Ah, yes. Was I? Wasn't I? Hang on. April? No, I was actually already back. True. End of, uh, I think I started again in November tw 2017. Okay. I think that's when you could apply for those positions there, the first cohort of, of postdocs, and I think that was already decided then. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Because I started um, in January 2018 mm -hmm. at the HFMB. Yeah. Talking. But I wasn't, but uh, but I wasn't um, involved in in writing the proposal or anything. Right. Okay. But you then got hired in 2018 again, and that's yeah. the first time HFMB, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Before then, it was, it was just Beth made, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. 14 and 18 and parental leave. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I just managed to like, yeah. <laughs> spread my contract. <laughs> so they extended as far that I could just then yeah. jump on the HFB contract. Yeah, talking about um, parental leave and like it's not very often being talked about in academia, but first of all, how's the family? They're good. They're yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have two, two kids, right? Two girls. Yeah. Yep. Two and four. Oh, sorry, five. <clears throat> <laughs> turning six soon <laughs> yeah how is it how was uh parental leave for you in yeah in in your life i mean i'm lucky that my partner was very open to also go on parental leave mm -hmm. because for my first daughter i was only away for six months mm -hmm. and but um for the second for eight months okay and which i think is very helpful in terms of because you feel like you're just like because you don't manage to read papers every like bef yeah. especially before you have your first child you think oh, of course i mean the baby's gonna sleep and i'll be able to work on something <laughs> and i mean i did keep working on on, on stuff and, and also something that i'd never do again i worked right up before like till the day before giving birth kind of which is something Sh that you shouldn't do okay yeah <laughs> what's the what, what's the ideal cutoff you go on mutterschutz like maternal leave like six weeks before okay like the the the, the, the date that they right. think the baby was yeah. going to come. And but you work nonetheless yeah. during those six weeks. Okay. Yes, because <laughs> you want to finish stuff off. And, yeah, like yeah, also yeah. and I, and I then, then again decided, okay, for the second uh, pregnancy, I'll definitely then like just take a break. And then, then, yeah, same thing again. Because then you think, oh, I, I might be able to then just finish <laughs> this thing off. And, la, 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 and, and uh, yeah, 
never works. But anyway, so that's a good recommendation. I mean, I'm always good at giving advice to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously once the child is there, it, it takes time to take care of it. I mean, some kids apparently just sleep. My ones didn't. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you don't end up being able to read a lot or, or like every now and then I was able to come in and, and maybe do a bit supervision or something with like master students or something. And But other than that, you don't have. And that, of course, means that you have a knowledge gap or, or also like networking and stuff. Mm -hmm. You're involved in projects and then you have to kind of either have, you have someone to replace yeah. or like the project moves along or something. So it's definitely a bit of a cut in your in your end. What I think is even more difficult is once you have the kids it's not like everything finishes when you're back from parental leave mm -hmm. like i mean the kid stays yeah so <laughs> it's kind of like before i was able to do work a lot of extra hours and this is something that i now can't manage i now work my around 40 hours a week and, and that's it yeah because simply because i don't manage because when the kids sleep i kind of fall asleep as well and and sometimes i manage to work then from 9 to 11 or something but it's not really sustainable for, for yeah. a long run. So no, exactly. Yeah, there's just something, something, someone else in your life that takes some time or deserves some time as well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which makes it more difficult. I mean, I just realized, especially before or during my second pregnancy, when I was thinking, okay, because you kind of want to. The only way, or often the only way, to stay in science is then a professorship or something. Mm. And for me, an option would have been to write one of those. Um, yeah, the travel fellowship kind of thing something some kind of thing the way you get money and you have your own research group yeah. like a research group lead and and i just realized like no i'm just not going to be able to finish writing it or like because i mean you work and, and then i mean there's a funny situation of having to work and, and write proposals and mm. at the same time anyway but if you ha then have a kid i just found that i would not manage to do that and yeah, no. and then i decided would. okay like either it works and wor works out in science by some coincidence or whatever luck or whatever mm. and or i might have to go in and work in a different area which yeah and you would have been open to do that certainly okay. this is also why i then as a follow-up project picked the fact and check that i'm working on at the moment yeah because because that's an, an, a national biodiversity assessment where i'm coordinating with helmut a, a group of, of lead authors that then put together a big report on the status and w what is changing or or measures and, and instruments that help to stop um, or maybe not mm. biodiversity change within Germany and this is this is not much of data analysis or, or I mean it's synthesis work definitely but it, a lot of the times it's like 50% I'd say it's email writing mm. emails yeah and so it's quite different to whatever I did before but I thought it would be really good in case I wasn't going to make it in, in science, mm. to build up this network of people that work in um, conservation agencies and those things that around here. And because this is like an alternative to science, yeah. where a lot of scientists then go and work. And, and yeah, and the whole project has opened like this variety in, in jobs and, and also how interesting they, they can be. And yeah. I don't know landscape planning and those kind of like like mm -hmm. spatial planning is not landscape planning spatial planning and these how important they are because those are the subjects that i always try to avoid when i was studying <laughs> because we had subjects like courses on yeah, on same. spatial planning i was just like, oh my god i just need to get through and this is just so boring <laughs> and and now i realize it's like the essence of marine conservation mm -hmm. because you need those spaces and you have to compete for those spaces like really hard yeah. uh, like with other interests and groups of interests and it's like the tool and back then i was 
was just totally oblivious to that and just like, well, this is really boring. And there's just, I don't know, rules and other rules and more paragraphs and all that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> okay, give me something different. But um, but you started working in that fucking check out field after your second child, right? Yes. Yeah. 2021. Yeah. In April. Yeah. I started okay. to work for the fucking check. Yeah. Cool. And and yeah. Sorry. And, and I think, yeah, true. There was actually one month after I got back from parent leave mm. from the second one. Yeah. So you seem to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think it's, it's, it's definitely possible. Yeah. And, but it's also, again, like if you've got people who support you and like, if I go to my advisor and say like, I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. Like, and he needs, he's like, well, <laughs> this is not a problem. Like it's <laughs> exactly. a lot different than he's like, oh really? So what are we going to do about your projects? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it very much depends on, and I mean, Avi and, and, and again, Helmut and the whole, they are really supportive of, yeah. Yeah. Like whatever. Yeah, the structures around to. it are really important. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um parallel to that though, you you started working at the start of this year on the transfer office that you mm -hmm. mentioned in the beginning. Could you quickly mm -hmm. explain what that is? It's in the phase of building up. It is meant as a like vehicle to to be able to to um transfer knowledge and, and transfer as I've learned a, a very I like, can also discuss term because transfer is often often seen as like transferring knowledge from mm -hmm. um, science into all those other people who <laughs> need it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, and then people now realize that that's not like the ideal way mm -hmm. of communicating and also getting things done and, and like and sustainably. Mm -hmm. And so it's more sort of both like um, initiating a dialogue between yeah. either conservation management and then also addressing decision makers and uh, trying to be a platform that um, can provide knowledge on certain facts surrounding biodiversity and biodiversity change. I, th I think it's Transfer Office for Marine Biodiversity Change. I think that's the whole mm -hmm. kind of always, because I mean, in the end, you have to kind of specify what is the stuff that you can actually transfer and what yeah. you think that you have kind of enough knowledge or can gather enough knowledge about. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's on marine biodiversity change. Yeah, and then now there's like, I think there's going to be a big mix of tools that, that we then can use to try and do that. I mean, Uta Jakob is also mm -hmm. working. She's always been working in science and polity on that interface and she's very active in on the European level. Yeah. And then there was at some point the idea that I would work on, on maybe indicators mm -hmm. because that a lot of times like what is done in science in terms of biodiversity change indication like and using with indicators is, is different to what I is used in the assessments. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one idea, but we'll just see. I mean, it's in the development and... Yeah. And yeah, and I think it's super interesting. Like it's super exciting. Moving towards this sort of like, just just a bit closer to where you, where you see the decisions are being made, yeah. and based on what and and who decides in the end, <laughs> and where, um, because I think scientists are realizing more and more. I've I heard people say that more and more now that scientists should be a lot better aware of when what kind of information needs to be mm -hmm. sort of filled in like yeah. and, and who um and, and to be informed about when what kind of political decisions are being made when that information is actually needed mm -hmm. not just like write in a paper and then it's out somewhere because the information might be there but it's not at the place where it needs to be to actually yeah, exactly then inform a certain decision on that topic yeah so i think that's super interesting absolutely and it's a bit more applied because that was for, for a long time my little sort of like because you always need to motivate yourself when you're in science like why do you do what you do because <laughs> in the end it's mostly on like this very little detail and stuff and, yeah. and because i always liked 
the bigger picture and and that is sometimes very difficult to satisfy when you work in science and mm -hmm. and so i like that sort of drift of myself towards that yeah well area. done well like a lot sweet and where do you see yourself next what's next for you or where do you want to see yourself i don't know <laughs> First, I'm happy that I'm where I am. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> For yeah. the moment. I, like, I can imagine. Give me a break. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been asked that, that question recently, like twice. And I was like, you know, I'm just glad that I <laughs> yeah. now I have got a position and stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely. And uh, but, but like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how many options there are. But like, in kind of just sort of, I think this is a big playground of options where you could go or how you could then mm. sort of shape your position that you have and, and then by different interests and stuff so yeah. i don't really know but first at the moment i'm i'm pretty happy where i am yeah and you seem to be very adaptable and and have a lot of interest in other avenues yeah i think that's good because yeah, yeah. often i thought like i'm not i'm not a really i'm not one of those real scientists because <laughs> i don't like burn just for this one thing that i really want to do yeah and, no and, same and um, that's why i always felt like i was lacking in a way mm -hmm. and um i mean a lot of people also then said no it's good to be a bit of an all-rounder and, and have lots of interests but like in for the end sure. when you look at some like ad for a professorship or something then and then it's like sometimes very specific of what they ask for or like also when you go to conference and stuff and these people are so like engaged and, and just so i don't know driven by mm -hmm. by their research questions and and i always i always thought like well this is an interesting question but i mean there's also 10 other interesting questions like not that i necessarily would have like hundreds of interesting questions or whatever. i often thought that like other people had a lot more interesting questions <laughs> but um <laughs> but then i just like i can't don't know, pretend to other people what mm. I thought sometimes is necessary then to get a proposal funded or something or what just convince people of, of that you want research question is the most important one. I just always thought that like I don't have this, I don't know, I'm just not convinced that this is the only, this yeah. is the question that needs to be answered now. And, and yeah, that's what I always made me feel to not be a real scientist. <laughs> But it got you to a super interesting and super exciting position. In hindsight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think like, okay, it wasn't too bad then, but um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. sweet. So we're at the almost at the fifty-five minute mark. Yeah, I tend to talk a lot. No, 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 no. What <laughs> was meant like that? Just like, did you have anything else that you want to add? Anything we've missed? Anything? Anything? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> then thank you very much for coming. You're very welcome. Thank you. And see you all in the next one. Bye bye. Want to dive deeper? Surf over to hifmb.de or follow us on Twitter at hifmb underscore ol.